Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, everyone. Do you like to read? Well, Have you ever started a book with chapter 2? You skipped chapter 1. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, I want to welcome a new sponsor to our podcast. It is MP Seminars. Do you know that today we have the most advanced Bible study tools available? We're very fortunate. And the very best that I know and what I use is Logos Bible Software. But it takes some coaching to learn how to use it effectively. Joshua Rowe and his team at MP Seminars can teach you, especially if you are a pastor or a Bible teacher. You'll want to get up and running with this only authorized training company of Logos Biblical Software, and you can find more information at mpseminars.com. That's mpseminars.com. Now, when you pick up a book, fiction or not, Do you typically skip the first chapter and begin with the second? On a few occasions, I've read the first chapter and thrown the rest of the book away, but I don't ever recall having skipped the first chapter and began with chapter two. The first chapter typically gives us the setting and the framework that allows us to follow the plot and the progress for the whole book. So when it comes to the Christmas story and Luke's gospel, why do we always begin with chapter two? The famous passage that says, Now it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up out of Galilee, out of the city of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife. Well, when we begin there in chapter 2, we miss the actual beginning of the story, and we forget the original heroes of Christmas, an obscure couple, gray and aged, caring for one another and quietly serving the Lord in a small house in a hill town village outside of Jerusalem. They lived off the beaten track, but that's just where God burst into history after 400 years of silence. Before Joseph and Mary, there was Zechariah and Elizabeth. And before Jesus Christ, there was John the Baptist. On today's podcast, I want to enter the Zechariah zone for this Christmas story from Luke 2. Now, Luke was a masterful historian. He gave us parallel accounts in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that is remarkable to look at. Chapter 1 of Luke is primarily devoted to an older couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who lived off the beaten track, as I said, and about the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. Chapter 2 of his book is primarily devoted to a young couple, Joseph and Mary, and to the miraculous birth of their baby, the Lord Jesus. 
The two stories mirror each other, and as one commentator observed, the same angel Gabriel appeared to Zachariah and Mary. Both were troubled by the angelic visit. Both were told not to be afraid. Both were told the future birth of a son. Both births were associated with the work of the Holy Spirit. In both passages, the angel gave the name for the son. In both, the angel stated that the son would be great. In both, the son's future roles in God's plan were announced. And in both, we are told of the birth, circumcision, and naming of the sons. And we are told in both chapter 1 and chapter 2 about each of the boys, respectively, that they grew strong in spirit. So let's start with chapter 1, the beginning, with this forgotten elderly couple in a nameless town, two people who had experienced heartache in life and yet had remained faithful to the Lord and to one another in the winter of their experiences. God burst into their lives, giving them the unimaginable opportunity to set into motion the events related to and preparing for the first coming of Christ. I want to tell you this story because I believe that he wants to burst into your life too. And when he bursts in, there's no telling what will happen. Zachariah and Elizabeth teach the secrets of overcoming griefs, of fulfilling the unique role that God had for them and for us, and about hastening the coming of Christ. They can show you and me how to make the rest of our lives the best of our lives. So here is the story that after four hundred years of silent waiting, the Lord burst again into human history, starting with this old couple somewhere in the mountain outside Jerusalem. And the first lesson we can learn is that God has appointed us for this very time. He has appointed you for this very time, just the way that he appointed Zechariah and Elizabeth to be born and to be at the very age and place and time in life that they were when God wanted to use them. I recall attending college chapel one day when Stuart Briscoe was preaching. In his inimitable British accent, he uttered a statement that I didn't write down, but I have never forgotten. He said, you were born at just the right time. You will die at just the right time. You are living at just the right speed. You are exactly where God wants you to be right now for his purposes. About the same time, I found a verse in the Bible that has since become my life verse. Psalm 139.16, you saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that he chose us in him from before the creation of the world. As the child of God knows, there are no accidents in our calendars. So look at this passage. After his matchless prologue in Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, the gospel writer began his story saying, In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now both these men seemed to be, and really were, near the end of their lives. Zechariah was very old, we are told in verse 7. And as for Herod, well, that tyrant died in 4 BC as he was reaching the age of 70. Years before, the Romans had appointed him to be the king of the Jews, though he served at the pleasure of Rome. 
His royal title was almost like a joke from God, for the real king of the Jews was about to be born right under his nose, which was going to send him into murderous convulsions during his final days. Herod was cruel and paranoid. He killed his own family members like a farmer slaughtering hogs, and he had no qualms about slaughtering the boys of Bethlehem in a vain attempt to kill Jesus. In the days of Zechariah, and as the birth of Jesus approached, Herod's cruelty was amplified by terrible diseases. One of the most unpleasant sentences I've ever read in a biography is this diagnosis of Herod's disease from an early historian, what he would have been suffering from here in the days of Zechariah. The old historian said, The chief violence of his pain lay in his colon. A transparent liquid had also settled itself about his feet, and a like matter afflicted him at the bottom of his belly. His priving member was putrefied and produced worms, and when he sat upright he had difficulty breathing, which was very loathsome on account of the stench of his breaths. He also had convulsions in all parts of his body. Some historians believe that he was being slowly poisoned by a political enemy. What if this man were your neighbor and the king of your little patch of the world? Many of us are frustrated at the state of our globe, and we complain loudly and often rightly about our government and its policies. But in the Western world, none of us lives under a monster like Herod the Great. Yet Zechariah and Elizabeth were born at just the right moment in history, They would both die at just the right time. They were living at the right speed, and they were just where the Lord wanted them to be at that very moment in history so that he could burst into their story and bring the real king of the Jews into the world. It was in the fullness of times that these things unfolded when world conditions were providentially opportune for the entrance of the gospel. John the Baptist The son given to Zechariah and Elizabeth was, in essence, the last of the Old Testament prophets. His ministry linked the Old and New Covenants, prepared the way for Christ, his cousin, who was exactly six months younger than he was. So we can think of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John as the trio who ended the Old Testament story, began the New Testament history, and connected the two like the spine of a book. Just to make sure that we don't miss the point, the very last words of the Old Testament say, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. That's in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. So the gospel story begins at this very point with the coming of the birth of John the Baptist, who we are told in Luke 1.17 will go on before the Lord and the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children. Do you see how remarkable this is? The Old Testament ends precisely where the gospel story begins. It is one seamless tale spanning 400 silent years, and there is an old Judean couple who provides the coupling. If God had wanted you to be born in the days of Herod the Great, he would have done that. 
He could have dropped you into the 5th century amid the collapsing ruins of the Roman Empire. If he had wanted you to help Martin Luther with the Reformation, in the 1500s he could easily have brought that about. Perhaps you would have loved attending the D.L. Moody evangelistic campaigns of the 1800s or wondered what it was like to serve the Lord and to live in the Roaring Twenties. But God in His sovereign grace and in His omniscient wisdom brought about a chain of reactions through generational descent and cascading rivers of genetics over thousands of years through ancestors whose names are lost to you and me, all to make sure that you and I came into the world at the very moment He wanted and needed us here. So God has appointed you for this very time, and He has a plan to use every day of your life to fulfill His goals and to achieve His glory. It's no accident that you are alive today. Here's a second lesson. God has also ordained your background. When I need an occasional pick-me-up, I pick up one of Florence Litauer's books. She died at age 92 in the year 2020, but her 40 books are tonics. Florence was born during the Great Depression and lived with her family in two rooms behind her father's general store. Her dad encouraged her to memorize Bible verses and poems, which she did. She took elocution classes in elementary school and wrote poems in high school. She was in the senior class play, and in college, she became involved in the drama department. She majored in English, speech, and education, and she became a schoolteacher. Along the way, Florence faced deep heartaches. Two of her sons were born with degenerative brain disease and died young. That sent Florence into a deep depression, but it also brought her to faith in Christ. One day she read Paul's words to Timothy about passing along the things she had learned to others who, in turn, could pass them to yet others. Paul was talking about the gospel, and Florence felt he was writing just for her. She felt God was calling her to a special ministry, one that everything in her background had prepared her to do. She became one of the most popular Christian speakers and writers of her era. Later, when a student asked her about her career, she said, I told him that my whole life had been a preparation to get me to write. My childhood memorization, my high school plays, my college speech and my drama training, my English and speech uh, training and teaching, the loss of my sons, my Christian commitment, my Bible teaching, my speaking ministry. She said it took time to realize that all my hurts and victories could be used to give others hope. My whole life has been a training ground for Christian service. Well, every person on earth has a different background. Things have happened to you that have not happened to anybody else on earth in the same way that you've experienced them. We all travel an original road, and we all encounter our own unique blessings and burdens. What we discover when we are in Christ and serving Him and looking back is that every single strand of our lives is God's cross-stitching, and He prepares us for the glorious purposes that He has for us. Looking back, that has certainly been true for me. Has it been for you? No detail is wasted. Well, it was true for Zachariah and Elizabeth. Notice, for example, one important aspect of their background— Luke 1.5 says, Now in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest 
named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So both Zechariah and his wife were from the tribe of Levi, and both were direct descendants from Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. Zechariah was a priest who married a priest's daughter, and they were part of the priestly line of Aaron. That means that their son, John the Baptist, was a Levite, a priest. I'd never realized this before until I just recently delved into this chapter, but it was a vital part of John's background. He, like his father Zechariah, became a member of the division of Abijah, which ministered in the temple. John must have been trained by his father from infancy, and he was undoubtedly given the formal education that he needed to fulfill the office of priest. He was trained to be a priest. According to Numbers 4.3 and 1 Chronicles 23, verses 2 and 3, priests could not begin serving in the temple until they were 30 years old. John the Baptist began preaching when he was 30 years old. But it wasn't in Jerusalem, and it had nothing to do with the temple on Temple Mount. He was there as a special priest to introduce the world to the man who said about himself, destroy this temple I will raise it again in three days, speaking of his body. And in John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the literal reading of this, and I'll read it directly from Young's literal translation is, And the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of an only begotten of a father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist testified concerning him. So Jesus Christ was the walking, living, true, holy embodiment of the tabernacle or of the temple of the Lord. And John was assigned to serve that temple. He exercised his qualifications as a priest when he baptized sinners and when he also baptized the Savior. All of the strands came together as a beautiful cross-stitching, preparing him to introduce the one who was destined for the cross. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. John's background fitted him perfectly for his task. And whatever your background is, look back at it with sanctified gratitude because God is weaving all of the threads together so as to make your life his handiwork, prepared to do the good works that God has prepared for you to do. No detail is wasted. Here's the third thing we can learn this from Luke 1.6. God is serious about personal holiness that verse talks about the blamelessness of Zachariah and Elizabeth. When First Lady Rosalind Cotter passed away a little earlier this year, her family held a small funeral for her with about 200 people. Her pastor said in his eulogy, There's no place on this earth that you can find anyone that has anything bad to say about Rosalind Carter. Not one person on the left or anybody on the right. That was because, he said, she did not worship the donkey or the elephant. She worshiped the lamb. What would you like said at your memorial service? It'd be nice if someone could say of us, it's hard to find anything bad to say about that person, for they worship the lamb. 
They were God-fearing, upright, honest followers of the Lamb. Well, here's the way that Luke describes Zachariah and Elizabeth in Luke 1, 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, that doesn't mean they were sinless. It means they were endeavoring every day to be increasingly sinless with all of the righteous energy of God's amazing grace. In other words, they were serious about personal holiness. And that's the kind of person the Lord is looking for. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Well, at the dawning of the Messianic age, the eyes of the Lord ran up and down through the streets of Jerusalem and the hills of Judea and the territory of Israel, looking for an aged couple whose hearts were fully committed to him. And he found one couple who was righteous in his sight, taking his commands and statutes seriously, and he chose to use them. J.I. Packer wrote a book called Rediscovering Holiness, in which he said, the sidelining of personal holiness has been a general trend among Bible-centered Western Christians during my years of ministry. It is not a trend that one would have expected, since Scripture insists so strongly that Christians are called to holiness, that God is pleased with holiness but outraged by unholiness, and that without holiness none will see the Lord. I've noticed, for example, that the language we use has gotten very profane and obscene. If you go into a bookstore and look at the titles of books, a lot of them now have words on the cover that would keep me from reading them out loud. If you listen to a politician speak, profanity is now sprinkled through the words like red pepper. Of course, television shows and movies and gyms and high school corridors are riddled with words that I wouldn't want to hear. And for some reason, people seem to get a real kick out of seeing videos on social media of children going on cursing binges. I can't believe it, really. What's wrong with that? Well, Colossians 3.8 says, Now you must rid yourselves of filthy language. Ephesians 5.4 says, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. This is one area, but only one in a thousand areas that the Lord wants to perfect in our lives. Many times we're not even aware of areas within us needing attention. So we have to be courageous enough to ask the Lord to show us and to help us. The psalmist said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's no question that Zechariah and Elizabeth had offered a prayer like that many times, for pious Jews were devoted of singing the Psalms regularly, including that verse from Psalm 139. Unrecognized, unconfessed sin can make us spiritually ill. If there is an undetected, unnoticed spot of sin in your heart, in your mind, in your habits, in your life that is weakening you spiritually, and making you sick in your souls, ask the great x-ray technician of the heart to search you and see if there is anything amiss and to lead you in the way everlasting. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. For, as I said, 
The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him and who worship the Lamb. The fourth principle we can learn is in verse 7 of Luke 1, that God works grace into our grief. There's a wonderful daily devotional book that is celebrating now its 100th anniversary, Streams in the Desert. It was compiled by Mrs. Charles E. Cowman. I bought my first copy at a flea market in Detroit in 1981 for 50 cents, but the contents of the book are priceless. Here's just one sentence from Mrs. Cowman's devotional material, and this one was included for the day July 6. It is such a comfort to drop the tangles of life into God's hands and lead them there. Well, we don't go very far into the Gospel of Luke or into chapter 1 until we come face to face with some painful emotional entanglements for Zechariah and Elizabeth. It says, let's go back to the beginning here. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. I've been a pastor long enough to realize how infertility can be to a young couple so very difficult and how much heartache occurs with pregnancy problems and with miscarriages and with all kinds of issues relating to forbearing. The feelings of sadness, anger, depression, hope, and disappointment, and fear can be overwhelming. In Elizabeth's case, if I may say so, it was even more difficult for two reasons. First, she was now very old and all hope was gone. Time had passed her by. Second, she was Jewish. For a Jewish couple to be childless was a sign of double sorrow because it meant they could never be in the lineage of the coming Messiah. They could never be parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. They could never be in that chain of forebearers who would make up the Messianic line. So people would view them as unworthy. This sorrow had descended on them decades before, but it still hung over their lives like a small dark cloud that never seemed to blow away. They had undoubtedly accepted it and learned to live with it, they understood the Lord's will, and they still had joy and purpose in their lives, but still, it was a cloud that always floated a bit over their home. Yet that is exactly the point at which God was going to do His greatest work in their lives. I don't know how to explain it, and I don't fully understand how it works out that way, but God works His greatest grace into our greatest griefs. And he causes all things to coalesce together for the will of those who love him and for the good of those who follow his purposes for their lives. He turns misery into ministry, adversity into advantage, burdens into benefits, and human pain into divine gain. He knows how to download grace into our discouragements and uplift our circumstances until they synthesize with his purposes. Our entanglement becomes his enablements. Well, there's so much more to learn in this chapter, but I'll leave that for you. I just want to introduce you to this couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, 
and to let you know that you were born at just the right time. Your background is exactly what the Lord wants it to be. He has given you a unique set of circumstances, and His love can redeem everything, for He works grace into our griefs, and you are just where He wants you to be to serve Him as we come to the end of one year and the beginning of another. So during this holiday season, you might have a glance at Luke chapter 1 and identify with the full story of this old couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Well, I want to thank you for following my weekly uh, podcast throughout this year and for sharing it with others. From all of us here in our studios, we wish you a very Merry Christmas. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media and by MP Seminars, which for three decades has been training pastors, scholars, and Bible students in the use of Logos biblical software. Audio engineering and production is by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds a helpful opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com, where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and may God be with you until we meet again. <laughs>